Again, I'm Cody. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here and excited to continue our We the Kingdom series. But before I jump into that, I um, want to just, that last announcement, the, the Discipleship School Open House uh, is next Saturday. And want to remind us all that we are uh, excited to have Dan Bauman, uh, one of the leaders of YWAM, coming into town. So even if you're an alumni or you're not actually feeling like this is the year for you to do the D School, would like to invite you to come to that open house and be blessed by hearing Dan speak. Uh, when he speaks, it's amazing. He's hilarious. He lives a risk-filled life with Jesus, and we leave just wanting to love Jesus more. And so I would encourage you guys to come check um, that out, and then our interest meetings are next Sunday. Well, hey, if you've been with us for a while in this We the Kingdom series uh, that started actually at the turn of the year, we've been talking about what does it look like uh, to be part of the kingdom and to follow Jesus? And how does that impact our life? And what is some of the differentiating factors of the kingdom? And if you've been with us more specifically uh, the last couple weeks, we've just had some light uh, Sundays. We've been talking about obedience and submission and the fear of God and rewiring how we think of these things that they, they might draw us towards the heart of God uh, and not be heavy and fearful things. And Tonight, we're going to continue that trend by talking about um, a really awesome topic that we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but as I was praying for tonight, I was reminded of a story. I was reminded um, of a moment. So I played football from the time I was six up until high school. And then to be quite honest and transparent, I wanted to play in high school, but I, I was too insecure of how small I was. Believe it or not, once upon a time, I was small. Uh, I was a tiny, skinny, short kid, and I didn't think I, could, I had what it takes, so I didn't play uh, high school football. I switched to baseball. I don't know why I just told you all that. You don't need to know, but there you go. There's my life. And so uh, from age of six through eighth grade, I played football, and every year I played the same position until eighth grade. And for some reason, halfway through eighth grade, my amazing coach, a uh, man of God, his name was Coach Wicker, he decided to move me to a different position, and it did not go well. I, had, I did not do well in transitioning to a new position, and the memory that was sparked in me was a moment uh, in eighth grade, um, the co our coach called timeout, and he, 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 uh, he grabbed all the defense, and he grabbed us to the sideline, and he grabbed me by my shoulder pads, and everything in him wanted to just let me have it just chew me out. But he was a man of God, and he knew that that wasn't the way to do things. And so he calmed himself. And then almost worse, I almost wish he would have chewed me out because what he did was really calmly, he looked at me, he got really close to my face, and he said, Cody, I need you to just do better. And I was, yeah, and he, then he walked away, and the whole team was like, whoa. <laughs> and I just remember that feeling of like, that's it? That's all you've got. Just do better. And I can remember going, I mean, it's weird. Our memory, what, what marks us. I remember the field. I remember the town it was in. I remember the team we were playing. As I ran back out on the field, the next time defense was up, and I'm just in my head, just do better. Just do better. He's watching. I just got to do better. I don't know how. I'm going to do better, though. I, I promise you that. I'm going to do better. And you know what? I didn't do better. And eventually, uh, at the end of that game, he pulled me aside, and he put his arm around me. He said, we're moving you back to linebacker. We're moving you back. This didn't work. But I was reminded of this just do better uh, mentality. 
Uh, we live in a just-do-better uh, 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 world, a culture. Uh, uh, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Just do better next time. Just, just try harder, do better. It affects how we see others, our expectations of others. That Why don't people just do better? Just change, just be, be better, do better. And how many of you have had moments where you yourself have had to sit across the table from a friend or a loved one and maybe with tears in your eyes say, I promise I'll do better next time. I'll do better. Personal story on that. We're not going to go super heavy yet. Um, but on the, uh, I've had to say, I'll, let me just, I'll do better to my wife many times. And, and one funny example so you don't know, I did not know the quirks I had until I married a woman who experienced all of my quirks and told me about them. So we've been married for seven years and for our, uh, or about to be seven years this summer for, for about six and a half of those years. So pretty much our entire marriage. Um, there's been this battle and I'm going to bring you into it. And it is really weird. I can't explain it. So I did not know I did this. And, and trust me, it's not going to be, like, weird in a weird way. It's just weird. Um, how do I go? Okay. Um, okay, so I, I found out pretty early on in marriage that I have this weird habit that whenever I use the restroom, uh, whenever I use the restroom and I use toilet paper, I have this weird thing where I take the toilet paper off of whatever roll it's, like, holder, and when I'm done, I, put it, I end up putting it somewhere else in the bathroom. I cannot explain this to you. I do not know why. But early on in our marriage, Kate would come to me and say, why is the toilet paper on the floor? Why is the toilet paper on the counter? Why is it on the back of the toilet? And I'd be like, I don't, I don't know. Why are you asking me? She's like, because you keep putting it there. And I'm like, no, I don't. And she's like, yes, you do. And then I realized, oh, yeah, it's me. Why am I doing this? I don't know. But then I was like, hey, it's not a big deal. It's like, to the level that I didn't know I was doing it or didn't, couldn't tell you why, that, to that same level, I was like, I don't know why this is such a big deal. Just pick the toilet paper off the counter and put it back on the road. But eventually, Kate was like, it does not bless me to come to the bathroom and never know where the toilet paper is going to be. So please, please, like, like, like pretty much like you got to change. Like you gotta, you gotta, like something's got to change here. And so no matter how insignificant it was to me, I was like, this matters to my wife. This is really weird. I should probably uh, try and get better. And, to, and not to like, like Jesus juke us, but like I actually had to pray. Like, God, would you highlight, like I, I'm, I'm not doing it like on purpose. So highlight when I'm doing it that I might stop doing it. And it's been a six and a half year battle. I've gotten so much better through the grace of God at put, leaving the toilet paper where it belongs. But there are still days where Kate will, thank you, Kate will walk out of, uh, into the living room and she'll just be carrying a toilet paper roll. And, and she'll just go like this. And I'll be like, oh, I'll do better. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll do better. I don't know. See, that's a really like trivial example. And it's a really weird one. But the reality is a lot of us uh, uh, in the room have been, can think of times we've been wounded by friends and loved ones, parents, uh, boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, whatever, you name it, that have consistently looked us in the eye and with tears coming down their face, I'll do better next time. I promise I won't do it again. I'll, I'll change. I'll do better. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. 
You see this, just do better. I can just be more. I can just do better. It actually is like anti the gospel. It's actually anti the heart of God. It's, it's the whole reason Jesus had to come, the gospel that preaches that you and I, we, we actually can't do better, better enough. We can never do good, good enough to overcome. Whatever we're struggling with, whether it's pride or anger or lust or whatever, we can't just do better next time enough to get free. Now, the world we, like, we live in, where everyone is their own God, they likes to think that we as humans have the capacity to free ourselves, to move forward, to get better, to do better enough. But I would argue if we could do better enough, not only would we not need the gospel, but wouldn't we all be free by now? But we're not. We need Jesus, the gospel that says, I'm here because you couldn't do enough. You can't do it on your own. You can't bridge the gap from sin back to righteousness on your own. Your good works, your morals, your ethics, your, your attempts, whatever you want to put it in, it's not enough. You need a Savior. You need a sacrifice. That's why I'm here. And He shows up and He lives a perfect life and He shows us and He models us the kingdom. He models us a different way to live. And then He dies on the cross taking the penalty and the power of sin on our behalf. And He says, this is for you. Because you can't do it on your own. That's the gospel. Right? Amen? Okay, amen. Praise God. We know it. We need a revelation of it. We need to live in light of it every day. We can't just do better anymore. In our relationship with God, we have to put to death, just be better. So tonight I want to talk about what, how do we respond when we mess up? If the world says, and there's self-help books, self-help books out the wazoo that you can buy, and, and there's a worldly response to messing up that says, well, if you just try harder and learn more and learn from your mistake and learn and do better, you'll get over this. What does the Bible say? What is God's way? See, there's a tool in the kingdom called repentance. But you see, even if, as I say the word, I think repent has been used as a weapon against a lot of people to point at them in their brokenness, in our brokenness. Maybe you're in the room and people have looked at you and said, repent, you need to do better, you need to change. You're not living godly. You're not doing the right stuff. Repent and change. And it's been a weapon that brings shame and condemnation and doesn't bring freedom. See, repentance was never meant to be a weapon. It's meant to be an invitation to freedom. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. You with me? Okay. Because here's the reality. I think there's a calling on this church. I think that if we, if we want to be the church that walks out in the transformation and the revival that we feel God has invited us into, we have to be a church that falls in love with repentance. We'll, we'll, we'll never walk in the freedom and the power and the authority that God has for us if we don't capture the heart of what it means to live repentive lives. There's a few promises in Scripture. Acts 3.19. I'm going to put that up on the screen. Repent. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Don't throw this one up there. We'll talk about a verse in James later that promises healing when we live repentive lives. A lot of us are stuck in different areas of our walk with Jesus. We're stuck in different cycles. 
We need refreshment. We need healing. We need breakthrough. And we need freedom. But we have a misunderstanding of repentance. For a lot of us, either it's been a weapon that we don't want to use or has been used against us, or we have rendered it ineffective because we don't know truly what it means. So for a lot of us, this idea, if you've been around the church and you've heard messages on repentance, the generally accepted uh, definition for what it means to repent is turn from sin and turn to God. Because the etymology of the word uh, um, that is used in Scripture speaks of a military term to turn 180 degrees. So we've been taught that to repent means to turn away from whatever we're doing and turn to God. But for a lot of us, repentance has been boiled down to, I just keep saying sorry over and over and over, and I'm repenting, and I'm saying sorry to God, I messed up again, and we're calling our accountability partner, I messed up again, and we're praying, and then we're just going on with our life, and we're waiting for the next time that we mess up, and we're in a cycle, and we've rendered repentance ineffective in our minds and our hearts because we don't understand the true life of repentance. See, Jesus, when he inaugurated his ministry, when he announced his arrival in Mark chapter 1, he speaks of, uh, uh, you can put that up on the screen. He speaks of after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus shows up. He went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He partnered repentance with believing the good news. We have to have a revelation of the gospel if we're going to have a revelation of repentance. Jesus paired and connected the two. We won't know how to repent or why we need to repent if we don't know we need the gospel. And not just a one-time thing. We need a daily to live in light of the gospel and to see sin how God sees it, that we might turn and repent. That's why we have to know the gospel. We have to believe. We, we, it's one thing to ethereally know the gospel and be able to tell people about Jesus. It's another one to know it for yourself, to have your life anchored and rooted in what Jesus did for you. And it's another thing to go a step further and say, not only, did he, not only is it true, but I need it. And I didn't need it when I was six and I prayed the prayer. I didn't just need it when I was 15 and I rededicated my life to the Lord. I need the gospel every day. Because when we live in light of the gospel, we see sin for what it really is. If those of you that are taking notes, there's the first step or the first point of what it means to repent. To repent is to, to acknowledge sin for what it is. We live in a, a, a scales world. Some things are worse than others. There's big there's Big uh, uh, sins and there's little sins in our minds. When we see through the light of eternity, through the lens of heaven, we see that sin is sin. And sin is what killed Jesus on a cross. And sin is what's robbing and stealing and killing us from living out our inheritance in Jesus. Jesus showed up and he actually looked at a group of religious people that were pretty proud that they were checking off the box. They weren't doing any major sins. And he looked at him and he said, you haven't murdered anyone, but do you have anger in your heart? You haven't committed adultery, but are you lusting after people in your heart? And they had, they had no rebuttal. 
Because Jesus was getting at the point, it's not just the big taboo actions that we classify as, oh, those are big deal sins. It's the, it's the attitude and the posture of our heart. Are we, we going to live free before God in a repentive life to live in the freedom that he brings? If we're going to do that, we can't just say, well, I haven't done anything major lately. We've got to live open with the posture and the attitude of our heart. We have to let Jesus in. When I was in college, uh, I'll tell this, I'll kind of weave this story throughout the rest of the message. I showed up and um, I had been addicted to lust for about seven years and it was eating my lunch. I was going to bed every night, ashamed of who I was. I was literally steeped in my mind where every time I would close my eyes were were the lies attacking my identity. You're a pervert. Why would you get married? This This will ruin whatever marriage you hope to have. You don't deserve to have kids someday because this is what you're going to pass on to those kids. And every day I lived in this, this habitual, just it was just destroying me. And I showed up and I got wrecked by Jesus and I started reading Scripture and I read that passage about the Pharisees and I was like, hold on. How long have I been living just trying to avoid an action? Well, I didn't act on the thought. I didn't act on lust, so I'm okay. And I read that and I said, I'm not okay. We, we've, we convince ourselves, I haven't done anything in a couple weeks. I'm free. When our heart is in bondage and we have to we have to actually let Jesus come like when in Ezekiel and Hebrews, and it says, I will give you a, a, a heart of, of flesh for your heart of stone. I will renew your spirit. We actually have to let Jesus come and clean us out and put a spirit of God within us and renew our heart that we might be clean and be able to live in the freedom that he offers. So first point, I kind of went off the rails there a little bit. If we're going to live repentive lifestyles, We've got to see sin for what it really is through the lens of the gospel. That there's no sins that don't matter. There's no, that's not a big deal. We have, to, we have to have a revelation that our brokenness led Jesus to a cross. That our brokenness, well, there was once a time when all I knew was brokenness. All I knew as Cody Wason was how to live self-centered, selfish, prideful, and lustful, and you name it. But now I know there's a better way. And I've been given a choice and an option to not go back to the old wells, but to go to Jesus. And because I want to go to Jesus, because he's the only one that has my freedom, I don't want to let any sin just be like, "Ah, that's not a big deal. I'm okay with that thought being a part of my life. I'm okay with doing that every once in a while. It cheapens the cross. And it tells Jesus that we'd rather have whatever sin we want than, than him. So what does it mean? I keep what does it mean to repent? Let's actually start the message. All right. 2 Corinthians 7:10. Paul lays out two different kinds of sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Sorrow. Remorse for what, something that has happened, an event that has occurred. When Basically what Paul is, is juxtapositioning here is when you mess up, there's two options. 
There's the way the world would, would, would have us try to get better. And there's a God response. The world will lead us to death. The, the God response will lead us towards lives of repentance that leave no regrets. So I've got three examples, three juxtapositions of what it means to live uh, repentive. Again, and this is under the umbrella of this message is about what do we do when we mess up? I don't know if anyone's told you that once you become a believer, you don't mess up. If they tell you that, run for the hills. If a leader or a, a preacher or a pastor says that they're done sinning, run for the hills. This side of heaven, we will work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to pursue righteousness and pursue holiness. But if any one of us would try to convince you that we have a completely pure heart, we will never have another angry thought, lustful thought, prideful thought, I would run for the hills. We're going to mess up. I'm not speaking sin over us as a church, but we've got to know how to respond in a healthy way. So here we go. Point number one, the, a worldly response to messing up is self-centered and self-protective. We see that with kids. It's really easy. When the kids get caught doing what they're not supposed to do, there's usually two, things that, two ways they respond. One, it's not a big deal. I just did it once. I won't do it again because they don't want consequence. They don't want a discipline. And then there's the classic, he made me do it. That's not my fault. They were doing it first. They told me to do it. They, they told me that, that, it, that it's okay. It's not my fault. And it's cute. Nah, it's not really cute when it's kids. It's not cute when it's your kids. But think about us now as adults. How quick are we when, some, when we get called out on our anger or we respond poorly to a situation and our first thought is, did you hear what they did? Did you hear what that person said to me? You're really going to criticize me for my response? Did you see what that person did? It's not this. Or, or, or we have a reason. We're justified for our sin. Yeah, I might have responded poorly, but here, here's the 13 reasons why you should understand and accept that you would probably do the same thing. I responded poorly, but when you add all the circumstances of my life together, you understand it's pretty much like that's how everyone's going to respond. We, we want to protect ourselves from, any, um, from owning up to anything. Okay, God response, a repentant response. See sin through the light of heaven takes ownership of our sin. See, I, I got, uh, you don't know how many times uh, my, the, our oldest daughter, or I only have one daughter, our oldest kid is about to be four. And on multiple occasions, I've had to go in to uh, our, our, the master bedroom and close the door with Kate and just cry because I just responded in anger to my three-year-old. This precious little girl that can't spell, I'm angry with her. I yelled at her or I raised my voice or I whatever. But it's not like, it's not Eleanor's fault. I don't walk into Kate and say, and she goes, wow, uh, what just happened there? Well, did you hear what Eleanor said? Can you believe that girl? She, she got what she had coming. We take ownership. It's not Eleanor's fault. My sin is my sin. That's why as a church, can we just get rid of the phrase, I fell into sin? No one falls into sin. We run and jump into it. It's like the most Christianese, like, 
um, self-abdicating. I, not, I don't want to be responsible for my actions. I was walking on the highway of holiness. I was doing the right thing, and I tripped, and I fell, and yes, I've been addicted for three years, but I just fell into it. It wasn't my fault. Who could have seen it coming? No. We, we own up. My choice. I made a choice to look at that. I made a choice to respond in anger. My sin is my sin, and in light of the gospel, my sin is what put Jesus on a cross. My, Jesus, my, my sin is what Jesus paid for. And every time I go back and I choose a, a broken cistern, every time I go back and I choose an empty well, I'm looking at the cross and I'm saying, that wasn't enough for me. I choose anger and I choose this and I choose that. So the first juxtaposition, we're not self-protecting, we're Christ-centered and we take ownership of our actions. If we're going to live repentive, it's not someone else's fault. Amen. Y'all are so glad you came to church tonight. <clears throat> All right. Example two. Uh, the world response to messing up is, is rooted and anchored in an emotional response that's tied to how good we can do. Let me explain that. We mess up. We hurt someone. I go to Kate. I'm crying. I'm, I'm snot-faced because of my sin. I've just yelled at my daughter, and I feel terrible, and I don't want to do that anymore. And I'm telling Kate, I don't want to be that dad. I don't want her to grow up in a home where she thinks dad's going to yell at her. That's not okay. And she holds me, and I say, let's pray. And we pray, and I say, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I have to do better. I'm going to, I'm going to memorize scripture, and I'm going to read more of the Bible, and I'm going to call more accountability into my life, and I'm going to make sure that this never happens again. And we are, our repentance, our remorse is based on a, the emotional moment. And when the emotion fades, we're left with, I, got, I just got to do more. I got to memorize scripture. I got to fast. I got to pray. I got to learn, whatever. And when we realize that we can't, I can't do enough on my own to overcome anger, we're right back where we started. Because it's based it's rooted, it's anchored in an emotion. I never want to do that again. That's great. But it's tied to what I, uh, as Cody, can do in my own strength. Whereas a godly response, the same emotion, the same snot face, the same tears, the same, I don't want to do this ever again. I don't want my kids to grow up in the home that I grew up in where there's yelling and there's fighting. That's not going to happen. Jesus, I need you. Actually, what my kids need is less Cody and more Jesus. The, the opposite of what the world would say, hey, you just got to do better. You just got to do more. You just got to be a better dad. Actually, they just need Jesus. They need me to need a little more Jesus. So once again, just like point one, uh, point two, we can have an emo emotions aren't bad. Emotions aren't the enemy. We can have genuine emotion that's rooted in the gospel. My kids don't need me to try to be better. They need me to lean more into Jesus and say, I can't do this. And without you, I have zero hope of overcoming anger. Now, let me just, I would say I'm not an angry person. I'm just using this as an example. Uh, if anyone else wants to call me out on anger, go for it. Um, but I just don't want to ever walk away thinking, uh, eh, that would be the worst thing in the world. Okay, here we go. Um, point three. All right, I'm going to borrow an illustration um, partly from um, a guy that I've learned to respect a lot. His name is Matt Chandler. 
Some of you may have heard of him. He's a pastor, um, and he does a great job. Uh, and uh, I was listening to a sermon of his once, and he, he brought up an illustration for this point, this next this last point. See, we as humans, uh, we think we've, we've got it all figured out. We're pretty smart. It's 2019. And then you remember that not too long ago, there was a show on TV called When Animals Attack. And this entire show was based on watching animals attack people and things, other animals. And that was how we got our entertainment. And not only was that show on, anybody ever see this show? It's actually a fascinating program. <laughs> I highly endorse it. Um, but there's this, this, the whole concept of this show is there's animals out in the wild attacking things. We got footage of it. Let's show people. It's pretty fascinating. Well, then you have the people that come along and say, you know what? Those wild animals that are out there attacking people and things, I think we can have them as a pet. So there was one episode of When Animals Attack that was about a lion that people had attempted to domesticate. And they had it on a chain. And not only did they think they had successfully uh, uh, domesticated this lion, you know, the king of the jungle, the, guy, the, the one that's bred to just hunt and kill things for their entire life. They had this guy on a chain. And they brought not only that, but they thought, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring him into like a sound stage. We're going to lay the lion down. We're going to bring a woman in in like a swimsuit. And we're going to have this woman lay across this lion and sell product, because that's what sells stuff. Wow, we need Jesus. Okay, so, so what happens? The lion does what lions do, and it attacks this woman. Now, she survives. She is severely injured, and the rest of that episode, they start interviewing, like, the owners and the handlers of this lion, and he, their response was, we never saw this coming. I don't, there was no warning signs that this, he had never done this before. How were we to know? We feel terrible. <laughs> See, the, the, the worldly response to sin is passive towards the source of sin. We would rather train it than change. A godly response to sin that sees sin rightly for what it is is aggressive towards getting it out of our lives and moved to obedient action to see freedom on the other side. See, here's the deal. So many of us get stuck in this mindset. Well, you know, I know, I know that God's called me to more than just getting drunk every night and making really poor choices. But I don't think I need to stop going to the bars every night and getting drunk. I just probably just need to have maybe one drink less. Because those people at the bars, they need me around them. And I just need to train myself to drink just a little bit less. I'll be fine. Every time I get around that girl, I just, I know, I, we, we just push the boundaries every time. And, and I know it's not right. I know I'm called to more. But I don't need to stop being around her. I just need to show a little self-control. I don't need to change my life. I just need to train my sin a little bit. Get it under control, get it under wraps, and we'll be fine. You fill in the blank. But we would rather train our sin than change our lifestyle. Because we've convinced ourselves, 
oh, that's religious. Oh, stop going out and drinking at bars? Oh, now we're getting into religion. Oh, you don't think we can drink? Oh, you can drink all you want. But just so you know, it's eating your lunch. It's robbing you. It's, it's killing you from the inside out. But you go and be free. Drink. But how, how free do you want to be? We've convinced ourselves, well, I, I'm not murdering. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not doing these big things. And you know what? I haven't done X, Y, Z, uh, the big thing. It's been three weeks, and we call it freedom. Well, I haven't, you know, committed adultery in a month. I'm walking in freedom. We're pulling our lion around on a chain, and we're convincing ourselves, I've got it trained. It's right there. It's with me. I don't, ha- I haven't ha- I don't have to change my lifestyle at all. I can just tug my, my sin around on a chain. It's trained. It'll do what it's supposed to do. And then when it mauls us, we say, well, hey, that was, that's only the first time in a couple weeks. I'm doing pretty good. We've traded in freedom for this fake, false sense of I can do whatever I want. No rules attached. No, Jesus is not, his all love. There's, there's no boundary lines. There's no, I don't, I reject religion. I reject legalism. And you can reject that all you want. And I'm pro-rejecting religion and legalism. But are you free? I don't want to, re- like, if it's religious, great. I want to do it if it leads to my freedom. If someone's out there like, hey, you stopped looking at, at pornography, you stopped, you stopped talking to girls for a year to get free, that's religious. Hey, great, but I got free. So you call it religious, you call it what you want to call it, I'm in walking in freedom. I had to do whatever it took. We've got to be a people that are aggressive, that see sin the way that, that Jesus sees it, the way that heaven sees it, and are aggressive to root it out because we've been convinced there's a better way. His kindness leads us to repentance. This entire series is about you can live your life any way you choose, but God has a way and it's best for you, for your freedom, for your holiness, for your purity, for your family, for your future, whatever. You can choose however you want to live, but there's a God way and it's best. If we're going to live as people who walk in freedom, that have victory, that have transformation. We've got to latch on to you. Uh, or, or repentance is not just calling up my accountability partner for the 150th time uh, this month. Hey, I did it again. Pray for me. I'll see you next week. Hey, I did it again. Hey, I did it again. Hey, I'm sorry. I want to change. I, I, I did it again. I did it again. I can't get out of this. I can't get out of this. We have to be willing to put action to our words. So the last part of living a repentive lifestyle, we've, we've, we've acknowledged a sin for what it is. We're living in light of the gospel, and not only its truth, but our need for it every day. That Jesus paid a high price, that we wouldn't have to live in our sin and our brokenness. We take ownership when we mess up. We don't blame others. We don't blame circumstances for our actions. We didn't fall into it. We ran and we jumped into it. It was our choice. We're not rooted. Our, our sorrow, our desire for change is not rooted in an emotion, but it's rooted in the gospel. That every time I mess up, it's just a reminder. I need the gospel. I need Jesus. I need His mercy. I need His grace. I need His spirit. I need Him. And we're aggressive. 
We don't try to train our sin, but we're willing to actually make changes to our lifestyle to see freedom. The action, the, the last part of this, is that we would be led to obedience-based action. There's two big pieces from my life that I want to wrap up on on that point. The first is confession. To borrow another Matt Chandlerism that kind of um, uh, uh, paraphrases the word, so it's kind of like a Cody Chandlerism type of deal here. Um, we are enslaved to our one percent. If you're ninety nine percent known, you're not known. There's a lie in the world that you will go to your grave hiding things. It doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. Your portion is not going to bed every night hoping you don't get found out. Confession. So, hey, so uh, as, as, I, as a college student, I got a hold of this. I wanted freedom. Now, here's, I just want to pause for a second. Because we started off by saying the world just says, just pull yourself up by your, your bootstraps and do better. Here's the difference in the kingdom. There might be a lot of things that, that you could pull yourself up and do better that look very similar to things that you feel like God's calling you to. The difference is what, I, what we respond to, our actions are based on obedience to the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just us doing whatever we want to try and get better. We're asking God, what do I need to be obedient to that I might see freedom? You get me? So it's not just like, oh, it's just self-help for Christians. You just self-help, but do it in the name of God and you'll be fine. No, the, the, the difference is those self-help books weren't written by the Holy Spirit. So they don't have it. <laughs> we respond in obedience to the Holy Spirit. So as I tell this story, I want you to be, I, want, I just don't want there to be any confusion in the room. That's the difference. As a college student, I realized I, I had to be free. I realized that I needed to start repenting not only of, of, um, of like major sins or actions that you would say, but I had to have an ad, I had to have that Ezekiel moment, that Hebrews 8 moment where I have I get renewed from the inside out. My heart gets replaced. My heart of stone is replaced with the heart of flesh. I had the Spirit of God. I had to start getting really specific. You want specific freedom, start confessing specific things. So I, I started confessing thoughts to, to the guys in my life. I start, literally, I, said, I had three guys in my life that I said, keep your phones on because I'm going to be texting you throughout the day. Of, I, I have to get free of the, the impure thoughts that I have agreed with for seven years, that I have sat in classrooms and just daydreamed about for seven years. I've got to get free, and I'm going to text you every time, every time. Whoa, for them. <laughs> I felt bad, but I had to do it. I gave my discipler my phone. I went and bought a burner phone. I, didn't, I couldn't have the internet in my pocket. One night I was praying and I was so angry at sin and, and I was angry with myself for agreeing with it and I felt like this prompting. So it, I, the, the, the major part of my addiction to lust was happening on the computer. And I felt like God said, get rid of the computer. And so I, I, I closed up my computer. I made my peace. I said, oh, oh Lord. I'm a college student. How do I not do this without a laptop? And I went in and I handed it to my roommate. Here's my computer. I want to be free. I walked back to my room. And, and I felt like God said, that's not what I meant. 
I was like, what do you want from me? He said, you got to get rid of it. Like, actually get rid of it. So I drove to uh, a, a parking garage about three blocks away, and I threw my computer off the top level of the parking garage. These aren't the actions of a holy man. These are the actions of a desperate man that wanted to get free. But I wasn't doing it on my own. I would have never chose to throw my $1,000 laptop as a junior in college off the roof of an apartment building or, or whatever, a parking garage. But I felt like God said to do it, so I did it. And I spent the rest of that semester going to the library every day. Libraries are cool. I learned. And there's lots of people that helps, that helped me. I had to get radical in my obedience. I didn't just say, well, God, I gave it to the guy that lives three feet away from me, where I know where it'll be at all times, and I know his work schedule, and I know his guy, and at any time, I can just go grab my computer, and like, okay, I have my computer again. I had to get radical. Radical freedom is on the other side of radical obedience. If we will just trust God that he knows what's best for us, we would ask him and f- actually follow through on what he says, what freedom might we be able to walk in? James 5.16, I don't remember if I, did I read this already? Okay, James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I had to, I had to be fully known. I had, to have, I had to not have a 1%. I still remember a night at the estate, Lucas Griffin in the house, old roommate, and we had 10 guys, and I had about well, three of those guys were guys I was walking with really closely in discipleship. And one night I was like, we're not going to bed. I've got to get it all out. Drink your coffee, drink your monster, whatever it takes. I've got to get it all out. And I remember it's like 1 o'clock in the morning. It's been a powerful three hours or so of me just confessing everything I can think of. And I'm literally uh, sitting there, and I'm going, okay, God, I, I literally cannot think of anything else. And boom. He starts bringing back memories from when I was a kid, 10, 11, 12 years old. I've never told anyone. I thought I'd take it to the grave. All right, y'all, get another cup. Because, hey, when I was 10, I did this. I've never told anyone. And I, and I thought I would take it to my grave. I just had to get free. I wasn't willing to lay my head on the pillow anymore and be afraid to get found out. Psalm 32 well, let's read it. When I, I love this. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. In the mystery of God, He set it up where He knows my thoughts before I think them. He knows my words before I say them. But He still has set it up where if I want freedom, I've got to put action to the attitude of my heart. He knows everything I've done. He knows how dirty I think I am. And yet He still says, confess, come to me, put action. Don't just sit there and say, well, God knows and He still loves me. Yes, that's true. But in his, the mystery of, of the Bible, the mystery of his uh, design is he set it up where freedom lies on the other side of action, going to him and confessing, this is what I've done. Remember when David murdered and committed adultery? What is the psalm that he writes? Against you and you alone have I sinned. 
That makes no sense. But he acknowledged, I went and I did these terrible things, but you know what led me to do those terrible things? I grieved the heart of God. I didn't confess. I didn't go to you with all of these emotions and these feelings and these thoughts. I didn't go to others. I kept it to myself, and it led me to murder, and it led me to adultery. We have to first and foremost acknowledge and repent before God. And then in his design, freedom lies on being fully known by our community. Who are you walking with that knows you fully? Here's a lie of the enemy. If you tell 10 people 10%, you're known. You're not. You got to have someone in your life that knows 100%. I don't keep things from Kate. I don't keep things from the, the guys I walk with. I don't have a guy over here that knows most of my story, most of my junk, and then I call this guy over here when I mess up, and I tell him, and then the next time I do it, I call him, and I can tell him that's, that's we're deceiving ourselves into thinking we're known, when really it's just an elaborate scheme to stay hidden. We've got to be fully known. I want to end with this. I hope you guys have heard my heart, because I want freedom. I want more freedom for myself. I want more I want, I want to walk with Jesus more. I want to love him more. I want to love people more. I want more purity. I want more holiness. I want more righteousness. I want more freedom, and I want it for you. Jesus said that he came to give us abundant life. I don't want to sacrifice that on the altar of keeping things hidden. But if we're going to do this, if we're going to live repentive, it's got to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We've got to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, and we need a revelation, like I said, a revelation of the gospel. We need a revelation of sin. We need a revelation of repentance. When I, um, at, right after I finished uh, college, I graduated, I, I was asked to help lead a college mission trip um, for uh, the Antioch uh, Church in Waco. And uh, so I was there. I was in, I was at the border of Texas. There was probably 500, 400, 500 students in this big room. We were worshiping. And it had never happened to me before. But I'm worshiping. I'm in the back of uh, the uh, auditorium. And I just start weeping. But not like... Oh, there's tears. Like my heart ached. Like it felt like some, it felt like someone had died, and I didn't understand it. I'm sitting in the back. I moved to the far back, and I just cry all during worship. And I'm like, "Wow, I guess I'm a crier now." Okay, I've seen this before. I've been around it before. I guess I'm one of those. And I go back to my seat. My co-leader Sarah Carson, Antioch Austin, shout out. Um, she. Uh, She's my co-leader, and I go to her, and I'm like wiping my face. I'm like, I don't know what's happening. Um, I just managed to compose myself. Um, everything's okay. I just, just Jesus made me cry. I don't know why. Uh, she's like, okay, weird. So then Jimmy Seibert gets up. He starts preaching. The first time he says the name Jesus, it hits me all over again. Like just like my whole family had just got like in a car wreck, and I'm just, my heart hurts. And it was a miserable 40 minutes, if I'm honest. Every time the name of Jesus, and if you know Jimmy, he says Jesus a lot. And I was just getting hit over and over. And I'm like, so then ministry time starts, and I book it to the front. I find the oldest guy I can find. I'm like, you're probably a grandpa. Love me. I don't, I don't know what's happening. Help me. He lays his hand on me, and he says, Holy Spirit, we don't know what's going on, but you're doing something. What are you doing? And in that moment, I fall to my knees as I feel like Jesus speaks to my heart, and he says, I'm just giving you a glimpse of how I hurt when you choose to go your own way. 
I sat there and I just wept and I was confused and I was, it was, I didn't understand, but I got a revelation in that moment that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. It's because He loves us. He wasn't mad at me because I couldn't figure it out. He wasn't upset that I wasn't following rules. He knew that I was hurting myself. He knew that I was like all the hidden things that I hadn't gotten free from yet. He knew uh, all the ways that I was choosing to go my own way. He knew it was killing me. And he was giving me a taste of how his heart was grieved by my sin. We think, oh, we, we grieved God by our sin. He's so upset and offended that we would sin. He hurts for us because he knows there's a better way. Would we be people that walk out of here, people of repentance, not willing to keep things hidden, pursuing, obedience, or pursuing freedom at whatever radical obedience we're called to? There's more for us. I want to end tonight the way we end every, every week talking about this Jesus, this gospel. If you're in the room and you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you, 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 and I feel like I've shared the gospel about seven times, let's do it again. If you're in the room and you've been the Lord of your own life and it hasn't worked, you can't get free. You can't be, get, be good enough. You can't, there's nothing that you can do or get to lead you back to God, to build that bridge back to God. The Bible says all we have to do is call on the name of Jesus. Believe He is who He says He is and that He did what He said He did. And we're saved and we're set on a journey of experiencing the freedom and the life, the abundant life that Jesus promises. So I'm going to pray if you want to bow your heads. If you're in the room tonight and you don't know Jesus, the Bible says to confess with your mouth that He is Lord. Believe with your heart. You'll be saved. There's not a formula you don't have to change your clothes and change your job and get everything figured out and then get to Jesus. You just call on His name. So I'm going to pray. Pray with me. Jesus, I can't do it anymore. I can't be the Lord of my own life. I need a Savior. I need You. And I don't fully know what it looks like, but I want to, I want to go on the journey with You. I want You to be Lord of my life. I believe you are who you say you are. You're the only way. You're the only truth. You're the only life. But you died for me. That I wouldn't have to live under the weight of brokenness and sin. So Jesus, I need you. Be with me tonight. Amen.